Um, privileged to be up here this morning. I just thought this morning before I, I started opening up God's Word, I, I just wanted to say thank you to Forest Town. Um, it's not yet a year since we first visited, and I don't know how many months it is that we've been part of the family here. Um, but we've been made so welcome. Uh, and I just wanted to say thank you to you as a community, and especially to Anton Helen and the leadership of the church for the grace and the fellowship that you've shown us, and, and for the fact that we, we feel at home so quickly. So thank you as a, a congregation, and thank you as a leadership. Um, what I want to share with you this morning is something which was of value to me. I hope it will be of value to you, but to understand the value of it, perhaps I need to share a little bit about myself. Um, because it'll put into context what I, what I want to share this morning. I, I accepted Christ as my Savior, was born again, invited Jesus into my heart, whatever your terminology is. I think I was nine years old. You know, when you're that age, you don't think to remember the date. <laughs> you don't think of the significance. I get quite jealous sometimes when people stand up and say, I, I accepted Jesus into my heart on the 14th of December on this particular day. But I was... A youngster, I, w- I went to a service. My family were, were very committed. I'll share about that in a minute or two. But I'd, I'd been to an evening service, and although I'd been in a Christian environment all of my life, it got through to me that evening that I needed Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I accepted him in the car on the way home with my dad. But I can't remember the date. I think I was nine years old. Um, the, the group of people that I fellowshiped with, the church that I was raised up in, um, was a very conservative environment. Um, we, we thought that Baptists and Dutch Reformed people were a bit liberal um, and happy clappy. You know, we, we were we were stern. Um, and I, I I learned a lot from the folk in that community, but there was a tremendous amount of focus um, on the rules. Um, I think one of the first scriptures that that that, that really stuck with me was Philippians 2, uh, 12. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, and there was a fair amount of fear and trembling in my early walk with Jesus. I understood that my salvation was free and for nothing because Jesus had died for me. But I didn't have much of a concept of the fellowship that I could have with him. I was quite afraid of the Holy Spirit. I'd read somewhere the scripture that said that if you blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, that was unforgivable, and that made me fear him. I didn't see him as a comforter, as what the, what the Greek calls the parakletos. I, I was afraid. And I set out to try and do my best by God, to obey the rules, to do the right stuff. I think it's quite significant. When I was very little, my brother and I on, on Sunday afternoons when people were around having lunch and so forth, we would pack chairs out and we would have church. I was probably about nine years old and, and I would preach and my brother would take up the collection. Um, it's significant that I've spent much of my life in ministry and he's a successful businessman. We, we, seem, we seem to have been role-played from the very beginning. Um, but I, I wanted to do right by God. And as I got older, that trend stuck in my life. It was about what I did. Um, I probably started teaching Sunday school 
as soon as I was too old to be in the Sunday school. And with the exception of quite a spectacular bit of backsliding at university, which I won't share details about now when I tried to have an argument with God over a period of time and it cost me dearly. But with the exception of that, I, I, I've spent most of my life trying to do right by God, trying to do the right thing, trying to be available to do stuff. My relationship, if I look at it historically, was defined by what I did, said, thought, produced, achieved, my availability. And although I knew in my head that my salvation was free and for nothing and through the, the grace of God, there was something inside me that said my relationship now with God is driven by what I do for Him. It, it was a dangerous place to be. <laughs> and I've spent a lot of my life in that place, measuring my value and my worth by what I could contribute. And that's really dangerous. Because when your sense of worth in a relationship, and this is not just our relationship with God, but when your sense of worth in a relationship with anybody is based on what you do for them, it's very vulnerable. Because if you don't do what you think is right, if you don't succeed, if you don't perform up to scratch, you don't feel the fullness of that relationship. You don't walk in the confidence of the fullness of that relationship. It becomes easy for the devil to sideline you just by saying you're not good enough, just by saying you can't do that, just by saying, and this is my big one, you're not worthy. You're not the most appropriate person for that. You're not worthy. You can't do that as well as that person. You've fallen down in that area before, and that could push me back into, I'm not the person that God needs in this situation. And so I worked, and I worked, and I worked. Everywhere I went, everywhere I settled, I would seek to do stuff. Don't get me wrong, we need to be busy. When I left home, my mother, with the best of intentions and with the greatest of integrity, exacerbated the problem. As I was leaving home to, to, to begin to paddle my own canoe, she said, keep your hands busy for God or the devil will find something to do with them. I've tried. I've tried. But you know, some years ago, probably about four years ago, I just got tired. I just got tired. I was doing so much stuff. I, my work in running a school, which is, we believe, a, a ministry to reach young people's lives, meant that I was pastorally involved right through the week in my school. And then I would go to church and I would be involved in as many things as I could. I was an elder. I was part of the global missions team. I was a worship leader. I taught community Bible study. I taught Alpha. And I ran from one thing to the other. And at, at a particular time, the wheels just came off. I just couldn't keep the pace going. I became a bit disappointed. And so I put everything down. I put everything down. I stepped back from everything except my job. I said, that's my ministry. That's where I'm serving God. And I put everything down. And the reality is I felt bereft. Because all of my life... I had based my worth to God on what I did and on using my giftings for Him 
when I stopped doing that, I felt worthless and I felt useless. And it was hard. It was really hard. Hard to break bad habits. Hard to change something. I've been studying God's Word as much as I could from when I was a young person, and I had the theory up here, but that revelation hadn't dropped into my life. You know what you learn when you're little? It's hard to break. That lifestyle, those basic values, and that work for approval that I had placed on myself was very, very hard to break. So when I said, I'm putting things down, I felt I was disappointing God. I felt I was disappointing people. I disappointed myself. I didn't feel a value. It was very, very difficult. And when I came upon what I'll share with you this morning, it was of great value to me. It's of great value to me because I, I found that, that I shared this affliction with some pretty, with a pretty impressive person that we find in the Bible. But I'd like to have a look at two people in a particular set of circumstances and try and draw some pictures that were valuable to me and I hope they'll be valuable to you. And to do that, I'm going to go to the book of John and I invite you to join me there. And starting in John chapter 13 and verse 3, and to set the context, we're at the Last Supper, as we call it. I don't think the people who attended it called it the Last Supper. I'm sure they didn't. They were at a Passover meal. But we've begun to call this the Last Supper. This was when Jesus took his disciples and shared the Passover feast with them for the last time that he was physically with them. In his heart and in his mind, he knew what lay ahead. He knew what lay ahead for them, and he knew what lay ahead for him, and he knew the tasks that they would face. And it's a very special time that he shares with them. Think about this. If you've poured your life into somebody for a period of time and you know you're going to leave them and they're going to have to paddle that canoe by themselves, your last couple of conversations with them, your last significant meetings with them, they're important. And we read in John chapter 13 and verse 3 that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Here's my man. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Peter protested. Let's have a stop and look at Peter. And let me say before I start looking at Peter and one of the other disciples I'm going to look at in a minute or two. These are amazing, powerful men of God. Peter is an amazing leader of the church and the new church and so forth. But I want you to see that he has weaknesses and frailties just like we do. And he and I share a frailty. Because Peter, if you look at him and you look at the things that we know about what he said, Peter's the one who's constantly saying, I will do, I will do, I am, I will do. And in these circumstances, Jesus gets up and does something really profound. He begins to wash the feet of his disciples, and it's a lesson. It's not just the washing of their feet out of his love, but he's, he's bringing a lesson and an example and a teaching to them because they are going to wield great authority and move in great power in the new church. And he needs that servant heart to be imparted to them. And he stands up and he begins this, and when he gets to Peter, Peter feels a need 
to be the one who says, not my feet, Lord. I care about you so much that you will not wash my feet. I am the disciple that has such a profound love for you that you will not wash my feet. It's not appropriate. I'm the one who understands how exalted you are. And he says, would you wash my feet? And Jesus said, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Peter says, you're not going to do it. And there's an element of pride there. There's an element of, I'm the one who understands who you are, Lord. I'm the one who really cares. I'm the one who honors you. I'm not going to let you wash my feet. But watch the switch. Jesus says to him, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Peter bounces back. They're not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I'm going to be the one that does the most. I'm going to be the one that that shows you the most respect, that grasps the most of what you I'm the one that's going to do that. I need to do that in this relationship because that's the kind of person I am. I need to demonstrate my commitment to you with this overtly in front of these other people. This is a good man. But this is a man with a need to do stuff in this relationship. And in a place where, in fact, Jesus is getting up to do something profound, for a moment or two, Peter pulls the light onto himself in a very strange way. The evening progresses. The evening progresses. And it says in chapter 21 of John 13, I'm sorry, verse 21 of John 13, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. We all know that this came up in in the Last Supper. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, now this is the book of John, and John is writing this. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. John calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. If you just look at that superficially, you might think, is there a bit of arrogance here? I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. I call myself, you know, it's, it's a bit like the, 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 the royal family. They don't say me, they say one. They refer to themselves in the third person. John refers him to himself in the third person as the disciple who Jesus loved. If you don't get what he's doing here, it can sound arrogant. It can sound, he doesn't claim that he's the only disciple that Jesus loved. But when John talks of himself in the context of the group of the disciples and what Jesus was doing, John's relationship with Jesus is defined by his understanding that Jesus loves him. It's defined by the profound love that Jesus has for him rather than by the love and the service that he brings to Jesus. Are you getting where I'm going with this? There's a place of tremendous safety and intimacy in a relationship where you understand the love and the care that the other person has for you. This relationship had been instigated by Jesus. It had been sustained by Jesus. And the most important thing that John could call himself, the thing that defined this relationship with him is Jesus loves me. He didn't say Jesus loves only me. He didn't say Jesus loves me more than everybody else. He's just stating 
the basis of his relationship, the disciple that Jesus loved. And it's interesting. At this point, it says one of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. You know, it's interesting to me when I, when I looked at this and, and I, I looked at this little teaching and I looked around in the Bible, you don't hear a tremendous amount about the exploits of John. He's quite quiet. It's always there. When Jesus takes people into an intermittent situation where he wants he's trusted people around him, Peter, James, and John. But the one you hear talking is Peter. And don't get me wrong. Respect this man for who he is, a powerful leader. John's quiet. But at this point, guess where he is in the Last Supper? He's reclining next to Jesus. He's right there. He's listening. And it says, then Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So Peter wants to know. Peter wants to know. Find out, find out, find out. But Peter has placed himself some distance away. And it says, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says to him, it's the one who will dip his bread. There's a difference in the relationship these two men have and what defines their relationship. But I want to be very, very clear. There is no difference in the amount that Jesus loves them. There is no difference in their value before God. They are both precious. They are both valuable. They both have a purpose. There's There's a plan for both of them. They are both valued. But they don't experience that relationship in the same way. Peter needs to be reassured. Peter needs to do stuff. Peter needs to get recognition. Peter needs to make statements. John defines himself by the fact, I'm loved by Jesus. I'm loved by Jesus. I'm confident in this fact. Let's move on. We still busy with the Last Supper. We're still in this environment. And Jesus, in verse 34 of John 13, speaks to his disciples again, and he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's beginning to focus on what will people see in you? What will make people realize that you belong to me? And he doesn't say by the exploits that you do, by the quality of your service, by the gifting that you have. He says, people will recognize you by the love that they see in your life. And it becomes clear to Peter that Jesus is is speaking about profound stuff, and he has a sense there's a parting coming here. It's beginning to, to get through. And he asks him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And here comes Peter. Here I come. But Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. These others are taking the sitting down. These others are being quiet. The disciple that calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved is reclining on his breast, sharing his fellowship. Peter can't take this. I will do this. I will stick with you. I will not leave you. I will not let you go. I'm going to be the one. Even if all these others don't, I'll go to jail with you, he says in one of the other uh, accounts of it. Even unto death I will follow you. Let's move to a new scripture. It's a bit later. Jesus has finished his time with them. They've sung some psalms together. They've gone out. They've gone across to Gethsemane, and Jesus has begun to pray. And his disciples are there to back him up. And they all fall asleep. So does Peter. So does John. 
And Judas comes with the crowd and they arrest Jesus. And here comes Peter. John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This profound moment in Jesus' life, which is planned by God, comes about. And Peter wants to do something. Peter draws his sword. Peter goes on the physical attack. There's a, there's a bravery in it. There's a, there's, a, there's a clear, passionate love for his Lord in it. But there's this need to be the one that jumps in and defends the King of Kings. And Jesus stops him. It's interesting. Jesus heals this man. There's a whole sidetrack I could go on. I've got this. You guys watch CSI? And he's a bit of forensics. I think Peter was left-handed. This has got nothing to do with my sermon. I think Peter was left-handed because he struck off the right ear. Now, how do you strike off someone's ear with a sword? You know, if you chop down, it's going to cut his shoulder as well. I'm guessing he was going for the head and the guy ducked, you know. And if it was his right ear, it means he was going that way, which means that a left-handed person was going. Got nothing to do with what I'm preaching about. It's got no theology behind it. Just when you get to heaven, check out and see if he's left-handed. It might be interesting. Um, if it is, I can join the CSI team up there. But here's the thing. There's this incident. Peter does something dramatic again. But what happens after that is they all run away. Peter follows, but the disciples run away. Guess who also runs away at this time? The disciple who Jesus loved. John, the person who defines himself as a disciple of Jesus, was one of those who ran away. And let's give Peter credit. He sticks close, and he follows behind. And he follows Jesus right into the courtyard because he has said, I will even die for you. I will not leave you. The others have all run away, but Peter is following on because this is who Peter is. I will show you. I will go with you. And you all know what happened. As Jesus predicted, when he is confronted and when the moment comes that he either stands by Jesus and confesses that he's one of his disciples and puts his life in danger with him or not, Peter folds just like I would have, just like you would have. But here's the thing. When Peter folds, all of his value that he had placed in himself, all that he had tried to teach himself he was, the need to be the one that does, the need to be the one that loves Jesus the most, the need to be the one who states the most, who will be the bravest, it falls apart and Peter is sidelined. He is devastated. He goes out and he weeps bitterly. In reality, at that moment, he had done nothing worse than all the other disciples had done and nothing worse than you and I would probably have done in the face of the odds that were against them. He had given in to fear and he'd run away. So had John. So had Thomas. So had James. So had they all. But Peter can't handle it. Peter goes out and he weeps, and Peter's out of the picture. 
I want to show you something which I hadn't noticed until somebody pointed it out. Go to John 19, verse 25. We've jumped ahead. Jesus has been brutalized. He has been falsely accused. He has gone through a trial. He has gone through all these terrible things, and now he's been brought to Golgotha, and he's been nailed on a tree. And Jesus is at his most vulnerable. He's at the point where he's going to, at some stage here, he's going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because even his father turned his face away. And Jesus is in a place of vulnerability and need. And it says in verse 25 of John 19, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. Lots of Marys. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Is it not significant that at a time when the Lord of the universe, the King of Kings, God in the flesh is at his most vulnerable and he needs something. He needs someone to take care of the woman who has nurtured him and loved him and brought him into the world. And when he is hanging vulnerable and damaged, he looks down and who's come back? Who's come back? In spite of running away, standing there is John. And it says from that day, not just until Jesus rose from the dead, but from that day, John becomes the carer for Mary, the mother of Jesus. When Jesus goes back to heaven, John is there caring. At the time that he needs someone, sadly, Peter is not there because the devastation for Peter of not living up to his expectations, the devastation for Peter of not being able to do what he said he would do has put him away. He doesn't feel worthy of standing before his Lord as he's crucified. And so at the time that he's most needed, he's not there. You know, this had a profound influence on me when this was pointed out to me. Because I wouldn't have been there. I would have been away with licking my wounds and feeling inadequate and feeling that I'd failed. And in that sense of failure, of not doing everything I could have done, it would have kept me away. I would have felt not worthy. Because my relationship with God, if I look back for much of my life, was defined by my value to God. Not my salvation, but my daily walk with Him, my enjoyment of His company, that relationship which we can have, that promise that we have, was defined by was I doing enough? Was I living up to expectations? Was I demonstrating to God and to other people that I really, really cared? And I'm going to be so bold as to say you're probably finding something that in your own heart when you look inside. Because we do that. There is a profound truth in the life of John, the disciple that Jesus loved, because here's the deal. My name is Clive. I am the disciple that Jesus loved. 
And you can put your name there. We sang, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. You see, I forgot one of the biggest lessons I was taught when I was little and growing up in that conservative environment. They taught me a chorus. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. In that little chorus was a lesson I never learned. He is strong when I am weak. There's an African proverb about an elephant walking across a bridge with a flea in its ear. And the flea says to the elephant, man, we're making this bridge shake. I'm the flea in God's ear. Together we shake the world. Because it's His love. It's His love that determines our relationship. It's his love that makes me who I am. It's his love that defines me. It's his love when he stands before the Father and intercedes for me that makes me who I am. It's his love that gives me the right to cry out, Abba, Father. It's his love. Not just my salvation, but my daily walk, my sustenance, my value is based in the fact that Jesus loves me. If I perceive that, then the devil can't sideline me by saying, you're not good enough, you're not gifted enough, you're not faithful enough, you messed up there, you ran away, and the cock crowed. And you were devastated because you weren't doing what you said you would do. He can't do that. If your security is based in the definition that you are loved. Let me give you a scriptural background for that. Romans 8, 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I mentioned to you, I backslid when I was at university. I was a pig for about two years. You know why that was? My love failed. My effort failed. My gifting failed. My commitment failed. I failed. You know what I found after months and months and months of fighting God? When I turned back to Him, His love was the same as it always was. Love never failed, never gave up, never ran out on me. That defines who I am. Does that mean that we now take a deck chair and we put it out on the beach? And we wait for Jesus to return. No. What I do for the Lord now, I need to do because I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Because I want to be close to him. Because I want to be there when he looks and says, I need someone to do that. I, need to, I want to be there. I want to be responding. But it's not what defines my relationship. It's not what makes me who I am in Christ. It's a small step in theology. It's a massive step in your mindset. Because I want to challenge you. How, how do you define your relationship with God? How do you define it? What's it defined by? By your circumstances? By your gifting? 
by the value that you sense? You know, I, I, I talk to young people about faith a lot. Teenagers are very insecure people, you know that. They, they, they struggle with their self. They're all cocky on the outside, on the inside, they're terrified. And when you push people sometimes, I'm only this. You're not only anything. You are in Christ. You are loved of Christ. You are valued to the extent that if you were the only person that needed it, God's own son would have died for you for your sins. That's the value that you have. You're not only anything. You are beloved of God. Walk in the authority of that because that will make you more effective in serving him. Because then... When you run away, like John did, like all the others did, when the time came, John didn't say, I can't go back to Jesus. I'm so embarrassed. I can't go and seek his face. I can't go and offer my services to him. I did that once and I failed. John didn't have that situation. John said, I'm going back to the person who loves me. I'm going to stand before the person who loves me and be there for him, whether I can do anything or not. And he lands up being there and being available at that profound time. You know what I find interesting? John's always there and thereabout when things are happening. Peter and John went to pray one day. They saw a lame man on the way. You know the chorus? John's there, but Peter's the man who does most of the talking. But you know what I find interesting? Read the last page of the Bible. Read the benediction. In Revelation 21, 21, it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Guess who wrote that? John. Last man standing. Not more value than anybody else. Not more loved of God than anybody else. Not somebody who had a special ticket necessarily, but he's there. If we to believe certain theologians after terrible physical suffering and persecution, after being banished, when God writes the last book in the Bible, he looks down and there's the disciple that Jesus loved. And he says, come and have a look. Let me show you and tell the people. What had carried John through the persecution, what had carried him through the suffering in Akubus, spoke about the fact last week, it's not all sunshine and roses being a Christian. There's challenge, there's persecution, there's pain. What brought him through it? I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. There's strength. Whoever spoke about gentleness being a powerful force because it means being fully submitted in your life to God. Having the strength to submit your life to God. You know, it's much easier to submit your life to someone if you know they love you and if you really have that that you, as a banner that you carry in front of you. I hope that's a value. In its own way, it was life-changing for me. But there may be some folk here who you're listening to this and you're thinking, that's fine, but I'm not a, the disciple that Jesus loved. I've I've never brought him into my life. I wouldn't like to end today without saying to you that the love that Jesus has for me and for those who have given their lives to him is the same love that he has for you right where you are now. 
God's Word, it says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, clean up your act and then I'll die for you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. The same love that I need to base my, my strength and my walk on is a love that's offered to every person that walks this world. God's asking you to just receive it. If you haven't made a decision to accept that love into your life, I would encourage you not to leave this place today without doing so. If folk here in the leadership of the church, Ann Cullum, any of the others, come and have a chat with them. Let them pray with you. Let somebody introduce you into a relationship where you can enjoy that love that our Heavenly Father has been holding out to us since the moment you were born. We're going to break bread together. Um, Charles is going to put some music on for us. I'd like to pray for you and then just invite you at tables front and back if you'd like to come up with your family and shake them in. And I want to encourage you that as you do that this morning, as you pray, remind yourself of that love that the Lord has for you. Remind yourself of the love that took him to the cross. It brought great joy to his heart. And I think that somewhere back in, that early, in those early days, I had this picture of God as somebody standing at the gates of heaven with a baseball bat and saying, no, you can't come in yet, you haven't got the right number of points. i tell you what picture I have of God now. It's not a very reverent one, but I have this picture in my mind of him kind of hanging out of the clouds with his hand over the earth saying, just give me a chance to grab you and bring you into my kingdom. Just give me half a chance to grab you. And as you go to share in communion this morning, remind yourself of the love that he has for you. And from that love, express your love to him and bring him your thanks.